Welcome to The Way Bible Study Podcast, where we do more walking the walk than talking the talk with your host, Heath Meadows. Discipleship, Doctrine and Donuts, who said Bible study can't be fun? And now your host, Heath Meadows. Welcome to The Way as we continue our journey through the book of Revelation. Today we'll be looking at the letter to the church in Thyatira. This uh, was a city located 50 miles southeast of Pergamum, which was the city or the church that we looked at last episode. And it held very little military importance to the Roman Empire. It was the center of slave trade for the region. And that was mostly due to the great condition of the roads and the communication routes which was a case in many of these cities, but particularly here in Thyatira. Also, it was known to have a great number of trade guilds. And these could have been anything from dye merchants to coppersmiths to bronze smith, many, many different trade guilds in this city. And each trade guild would have had probably a god or, or a religion or something that they looked to. So we have to remember that during this period of time, there was no such thing as separation of religion and state, religion and government. Emperor worship was actually encouraged. And these guilds would have had their own, sometimes their own gods to worship. So getting together, let's say for, with lack of better terms, like a convention would have meant drunkenness, sexual immorality, all kinds of debaucheries, and would have been very difficult for Christians to participate in those things. And when they didn't, they were ostracized. So persecution many times came in the form of economic persecution where they'd hit them in the wallet. If you couldn't join these guilds, how were you going to make a living? And so it was a very difficult situation for these guys to be in. This is where also Lydia a merchant in purple dye. She was from the city of Thyatira. And you read her story in Acts 16, 14. Paul meets her on his way through Philippi. It's really interesting to know that purple dye actually came from snails. For a long period of time, scholars couldn't figure out how to reproduce the exact purple that they were talking about. It comes from actual snails. And it's rumored to be, or have been, very, very expensive. Only the most wealthy could afford this this die so that's kind of an interesting side note so there was a christian community in this city from the uh, around eight, 80s um, to 1922 when the turkish government expelled the greek orthodox church there and the theme in this letter is very similar almost nearly identical really to pergamum but the, there's indications that the false teaching false prophets and there's actually a more of a focus on false prophecy here in this letter than the one to Pergamum. But there's a lot of indications that it had taken root and had been there for much longer period of time than what the false teaching had been in the church in Pergamum. So that's kind of important to note. So we're going to look at the first verse here in chapter 2, verses 18, the letter to uh, Thyatira. So it reads, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So it's important to note here that this is the first time and only time that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. The image actually comes from the Revelation 1, 14 through 15. 
And uh, it's clear that John is referring to Daniel chapter 3. And there's a linkage here that we're going to talk about in just a moment. But remember the story in Daniel 3. It's about Daniel's three friends who are faced with the fiery furnace. And I think it's really important because it sets the mood and the tone for this letter that we look at that story. Because remember, in context, the people that read Revelation when John wrote it, they knew their Old Testament. They would have picked up on these images right away and knew what John was putting down with this. So let's take a look at Daniel, at the fiery furnace account. And it begins Daniel chapter 3, verse 8. And you'll see, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase through some of this so we don't get caught up in reading the whole thing. But you'll see that there were certain Chaldeans came forward and they maliciously accused the Jews. And basically, they said that, hey, you know this golden statue that you set up and you said every time a musical instrument would play that they had to fall down and worship your golden image? Well, these three Jewish boys refuse to do that, and they're causing trouble, and they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Again, this was a society norm. You were supposed to do these things, just like Thyatira and Christians would have picked up on this right away because they were supposed to worship other gods in order to prosper and get involved in society. So Nebuchadnezzar becomes just enraged, and he calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be brought to him. And he basically says, is this true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, it's well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond. They say, hey, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this, is, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you. There's a translation. I can't remember which one it says, but even if he doesn't, they're not going to bow and they're not going to serve other gods. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And this is the patient endurance. This is the faithful witness. And this is the exact image that John was trying to bring up to the Christians in that city for this specific reason. They're not going to bow to other gods. This is an important image when we talk about the next few verses when it comes to what the false teaching and the false prophetess in that area were doing because these boys held true to the word of God and they held true to Yahweh, and that's what's important. And so as we read through this, we know the story. It's, it's a famous story. You know, he gets hot and he makes the furnace even hotter and heats it up seven times hotter than it normally is, which I, I find it interesting. So it's so hot that the people that lead Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up and to throw them in, they actually die because it's so hot. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. 
and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, that's an important statement. And if you read through there, they'll, you'll find out that nothing on their body was burnt, which is really cool. We want to talk about this whole son, or son of the gods. Christian and Jewish roots and tradition would say that the Son of God, the Son of Man from Daniel 7, and the Son of Gods in Daniel 3 are all interchangeably linked. So this links all these all these texts to the same image that John is throwing out here, this idea of Christ in the fiery furnace with you. And uh, I also think that's where the feet, like bronze from a furnace, that's what that means. That's, again, hearkening to this image of, yeah, it, these trade guilds may cause you persecution. They may turn up the heat. They may turn up the economic heat. But those that don't bow, those that refuse to bow, will not burn. And Christ is more than able to protect you through those things. And this is the image that, again, John is trying to portray to the Thyatiran Christians, something that they really need to see and encourage and grasp a hold of. It also links Psalm 2, which is cited at the beginning of this letter and at the conclusion of the letter. And Psalm 2 has to deal with the idea of the Messianic king, ruler, and judgment that he issues on nations. And so this also reinforces the judgment that's coming on those that do not repent, that are involved in this false teaching, this false movement that's happening within that church of the region. So another interesting polemic is that of the local guide deity, which is Apollo Terramanius, and this whole divine emperor kind of theme, both during that time referred to as sons of Zeus. The depiction of Apollo and the emperor appear on coins from Thyatira, and another fact that supports John slamming Roman gods as the deification of the emperor Domitian's son is on coins as pictured as a boy sitting on a globe with seven stars. So again, John likes giving these little jabs to the Roman Empire, to their gods, and basically he says, there's only one true God, and his name is Jesus. And so through these images, he's doing this in multiple ways. And you just got to you just gotta love John. He's, he's so cool. So we're going to look at the next part and really hone in on what I think is so vital and key for today. And it has me very concerned for the Western church. I can't speak to other churches around the world. I can't speak to the American church and the Western church and what's going on here. And I can tell you that what is happening today is identical to what happened in Pergamum and what happened in Thyatira and actually the other churches as well. We're going to look at the next key verse or key verses. So I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed your see the first. That shows maturity, right? They're getting out there. They're witnessing for Christ in a place where it would be very detrimental to your pocketbook if you did so. But I have these again, this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. It is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. That's that's interesting that he actually, again, the mercy of God, right? This woman's or woman's or group of people could be multiple answers there. 
are leading people astray, probably intentionally, and he's still giving them time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Very important scripture for what we're doing and um, what we're going to talk about today. And I think it's very vital. You know, I enjoy adding funny clips to these studies and that's just part of who I am. I think things need to have fun and you need to have fun while you're doing the Bible. And I think God's got a great sense of humor, but this is a serious issue and there's a stern warning that's coming out of this that I feel needs to happen today. And so the video clips I'm going to show you today are to me very serious and very disturbing as to what's happening in the American church. I believe the problem that invaded these last two churches has saturated the Western church. And I can't speak again to the rest of the world, but I am sure they have their issues with false prophets and false teachers, as we do here. So these same kind of teachings that were in Pergamum, having problems in Thyatira, the difference is I think they were, it's, it's evident that they were actually rooted and been there longer than what they had been in Pergamum. In verse 19, you know, like I said, it commends the works of what they were doing. They were persevering and witnessing in the city. They exhibited patient endurance and their works in contrast to Ephesus were greater than their first works was showing a line of maturity. If you remember Ephesus, their latter works were lacking and they were their first works were better. And so it was the exact opposite. But notice that there seems to exist an imbalance within this church. Though they have a strong witness and faith, they tolerate poor or false doctrine. This is a church with an overemphasis of the love of God and not his severity or his word. In his commentary on Revelation, Ian Paul says this, If sound doctrine without love is worthless, then love without right teaching is at best flaccid and at worst misleading. I think it's really important for us to remember that today because there's a lot of churches that focus solely on the love of God, which is a great topic. It is true. But when we love people so much that we allow them to be misled and teach misleading things, we're in trouble. So let's look at Jezebel. So Jezebel, or rather the spirit of Jezebel, is a very familiar name among charismatic community. And I've heard that the spirit of Jezebel is plaguing America, targeting prophets, and causing all kinds of havoc in the church and world. Now, some of you are going to think, well, you're just splitting hairs, Heath. But I'm going to tell you, I have a problem with the way this is presented. Because the spirit of the woman who worshipped false gods, practiced sexual immorality, and killed the prophets of God, this Jezebel... Her spirit's actually in hell. She's human. She wasn't a son of God as outlined in Genesis 6 that fell. She's not from, you know, she's not one of the, the Elohim assigned to the table of nations. Different teaching. I'm not going to get into that. Read Michael Heiser's Supernatural or Unseen Realm. Explains it pretty thoroughly. She's a woman. So her spirit, it's, it's not floating around the world causing great havoc but what i do believe is that the spirits the demonic powers the principalities that influenced her are alive and well today 
the spirit of Baal and Asherah. Those are the false gods that she worshipped, which I believe are some type of either demonic principality of power. And again, we can get all, I'm not, I'm not going to get into that study in this topic. We can do a whole series on that kind of stuff, which is really, to me, fascinating. But I believe those spirits are alive and well today. And I just want to point out real quick, we're going to look at 1 Kings 18, 19. And it says right here, the famous showdown on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And Elijah's telling Ahab, go therefore and send and gather all Israel to meet me in Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. It's showing that uh, Jezebel basically had a special table design just so that they could all hang out and eat. Now, I can guarantee you that they were eating food that was sacrificed to these gods. It was just part of the culture, part of the thing. And that's why it's also included in this whole idea of eating food sacrificed to idols, which was a part of Roman worship as well. It's, it's not uncommon. It wouldn't have been uncommon to those today. It just doesn't sound... Sounds weird to us today because we don't see it as much, although there are still parts of the world that give food offerings to to gods. And I think it's important that we notice that she ate with these people. They, she was intimate with this prophet. She was a prophetess herself. And so it's important for us to understand for the purpose of getting the, the picture that John's wanting to paint here because he's referencing her who or what was Asherah? Well, she was a goddess. If you go to the Dictionary of Deities and Demons, which explains the different things in the Bible where we see like Asherah when it pops up or Baal or, Mar or Marduk or these different gods, it's a great resource to understand the backdrop of where these false gods came from and the idea behind it. It's a great resource. But when we look in... We actually, will, we're going to look at the Lexham Bible Dictionary first. And it defines Asherah as the name used for both a Canaanite fertility goddess and the wooden pole that symbolized her. Most occurrences of Asherah in the Bible refer to a sacred pole or tree used in Canaanite and Israelite worship. However, extra biblical texts found at Ugarit shed light on other occurrences, suggesting that Asherah is a name of a goddess. So just reading from the Dictionary of Deities and Demons, I'm just going to read a few things. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But in the Baal Cycle, which is a very, very well-known manuscript, and it's full of myths, she's a great goddess, mother of the minor gods of the Pantheon, referred to as the 70 sons of Adarat. So that's important because we have this 70 nations, or the Table of Nations, and those are linked. Again, read Michael Heiser's Unseen Realm, and you'll you'll understand what I'm coming from there. Don't have time to dive into that, but that's really important to understand. It's actually a really important piece to get into when you're trying to look at the book of Revelation as well. It's a great book. I recommend it. Who intercedes for Baal and not before El? And who supplies a son to reign following the sin of Baal into the netherworld. So this is just the mythology. In one obscure episode, it is possible that she attempts to seduce Baal or is thought by him to have done so. Uh, it may also be that Baal kills large numbers for children. That's interesting when it comes to this idea of abortion. Uh, she appears to be the consort of Baal, and though this is nowhere stated, we don't know for sure. The one thing I also thought was very weird, because when I was looking at pictures of this god there's pictures of her and she's always holding her breast and i'm thought oh, that's really strange well 
it was believed that kings actually, it was called divine suckling, and kings actually suckled from her breast when they were young. That's what made them kings. And so that would make sense why the the little figures are holding their breasts. It's, it's strange. So Baal was the hero, storm god of the Canaanites and other Mesopotamian religions. He also was the god of lightning and rain. So when you read the story of Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, the god who answers by fire is the god of Israel. Well, let's probably referring to lightning and the whole idea that the drought was God's way of showing Baal is a, a God. I'm the God. I'm the one true God. Yahweh controls the rain. Yahweh controls the lightning, not Baal. And so that was a statement that was being made. So you miss those kinds of really cool things when you don't understand the backdrop and the context of the story that the biblical writer is trying to get across. In the Lexham Bible Dictionary, the Canaanite Baal is described as the Canaanite storm god and bringer of rain, chief of the Canaanite pantheon. As a storm god and bringer of rain, Baal was recognized as sustaining the fertility of crops, animals, and people. His followers often believed that sexual acts performed in his temple, so there was temple prostitution, would boost Baal's sexual prowess and thus contribute to his work in increasing fertility. Baal was part of the religion of fertility, every culture of every ancient Near East. So he was very popular in the Near East. It was also leaked to the, to the god Marduk from the Babylonian. Actually, this think they swapped names, and it was the same entity. And that's the one where the Bible talks about passing their children through the fire, which required child sacrifice, which is horrendous. But again, he was known by many different names. And these spirits are, I believe, are alive and well today. When we talk about the spirit of Jezebel, we're not really talking about her spirit. We're talking about these spirits that controlled her. And so I think it was Jonathan Kahn who brought out and made it known uh, to the Christian world that the reproduction of the arches to the great temple of Baal were reproduced and brought to the city of New York in front of the, the, the stock exchange. And then they were also brought to Washington, D.C. during a famous trial there of a Supreme Court justice in 2018. So you can look that up on the internet and see those arches. To have those in the United States where we would have absolutely no link in our history, not even the Native Americans, the first American peoples here, would have any link to this God. To have that here is very odd, and I believe a very strong spiritual statement as to what's going on here in America and what is controlling some of the false teaching of false prophets here in America. Why? The question needs to be asked, why has John decided to use both Balaam, which he did in the Pergamum, and Jezebel as analogies from the Old Testament to describe the false teachers slash prophets in Pergamum and Thyatira. Why would he use those? What specifically was he trying to pull out? Now, remember, we were talking about the whole idea of what is happening there in Thyatira with them being persecuted by the trade guilds and being sucked into worshiping or being a part of pagan worship in some manner in order to survive. Somebody's saying it's okay to do that. And the image that John is bringing up of those three boys refusing to bow to King Nebuchadnezzar and bringing that up to these Christians who are thinking maybe some of these Christians, have, and we find out that many have not, but the ones that are are thinking maybe 
This is a way of convicting them, of saying, we need to repent. Because look, remember this story. And look, these guys were faced with death and they didn't bow. And here we are, uh, we're compromising. And so John's bringing those images up. So Balaam, despite being warned of the Lord, he continued to try and curse and seduce Israel. Remember the story that we read on this. And so he wasn't able to curse them. But what he did was he convinced King Balak of, of the Moabites to have the women seduce the Israelite men and then get them to worship their gods, which is what happened. So he introduced that kind of immorality into Israel. And Jezebel, who seduced Israel into worshiping false gods, Baal and Asherah, and tormented and killed true prophets of God. And she had tremendous following and was in a position of power. So we don't know exactly if this was a one prophetess person who was leading or many. We're not sure, but we do know that both of these people were leading God's people astray by persuading them that being part of a pagan culture was acceptable. Motivation in both cases was greed. Trade guilds and occult worship were not separate, but to make money and meant participation. So we had to participate in order to make money. This is arising in our day right now. Being a part of cultural trends that are anti-biblical for the sake of a platform is, is a rising movement within the church. I'm going to say it like it is. Progressive Christianity is a doctrine of demons, one of which I am going to show a clip here of Brandon Robinson. This is a TikTok video that went viral and really got people fired up as far as some of his comments, which I'm sure you'll see. So here is, again, Brandon Robinson talking about Jesus as a racist. Did you know that there's a part of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus uses a racial slur? In Mark chapter 7, there's the account of the Seraphonician woman, a woman who is Syrian and Greek, both of which there were strong biases against within the Jewish community. And she comes to ask Jesus to heal her daughter who's possessed by a demon. And what is Jesus' response? He says, it's not good for me to give the children's food, meaning the children of Israel's food, to dogs. He calls her a dog. What's amazing about this account is that the woman doesn't back down. She speaks truth to power. She confronts Jesus and says, well, you can think that about me, but even dogs deserve the crumbs from the table. Her boldness and bravery to speak truth to power actually changes Jesus' mind. Jesus repents of his racism and extends healing to this woman's daughter. I love this story because it's a reminder that Jesus is human. He had prejudices and bias, and when confronted with it, he was willing to do his work. And this woman was willing to stand up and speak truth. Mike Winger does a great teaching on this subject, and I would recommend checking out his channel. Brandon Robinson has several videos on YouTube. Again, you can check out some of his stuff. Mike Winger basically shows you scripturally what he's presenting this idea that the dog is a racial slur that is not what it is not even close in fact the, the word for dog there actually means lap dog or pet and it has to do with those group of people walking away from the true god of yahweh and worshiping other gods and not sitting at the table with the true god supping with jesus when they had the the opportunity to do that and taking a lesser religion which are not of these false gods and that's that idea. It's not has nothing to do with race. Now, is racism a problem? Well, yeah, it's a problem in many parts of the world. And we as Christians need to be the number one 
voices that speak out against it. Because I'm telling you, my Savior was not a racist, because if he was, then he had sin. And if he had sin, then he wasn't the sacrifice that covers my sin. So that's a load of baloney and uh, doesn't even hold water. And, the, and they twist the scripture. It's heretical. They twist the scripture to make it sound something that it's not. Brandon Robinson, believe it or not, he graduated from Moody Bible Institute, so he's not an idiot about Scripture. So you can't claim ignorance on this. This is this is manipulation of Scripture to suit a purpose, which it's very much darker than that. It's a doctrine of demons. He himself says he's bisexual. He permits bisexual relationships within a church, says it's okay, open marriages, changes he changes the word to salvation to mean something else this is all videos that you can find on his youtube channel uh, he tells his congregation that there is no hell i heard him say that I about fell off my chair uh, there's no eternal judgment for sin and that there we are to experience the pleasures of salvation which is prosperity now thinking man if if salvation is what we see now in the world whoo man I, I don't know how you're selling that brother I really don't. So my friends, this is from the pit of hell. And anyone who has done a little bit of Bible study should know this. You know what? Jesus speaks of hell multiple times. So how about Matthew 13, 40 through 42, Mark 9, 43 to 48, and Luke 12, 4 through 5. Jude speaks of hell. Revelation 20, 14 and 15 talks about hell. We're going to dive into that subject. I'm going to show you scripturally all kinds of references to hell. It's a real place. And you will go there if you reject Christ. Guaranteed. You can take it to the bank. So these guys are wolves in sheep's clothing. The arguments are very persuasive. And if you don't have a firm grip on the Bible, truly, you know, what the Bible truly says, you will be lost in the sauce. These guys will eat you alive. It is for men like these and women, because there's some women out there. I just didn't get any on this. this. Sorry if you feel left out, ladies, but... I'll get some next time. I won't have any on videos, but there are there are women out there that are teaching things that are are blasphemous. I've actually talked about one previously on another podcast. But to say that these this is why this channel was made. It is the lack of boldness in our pulpits that these men and women prosper because we don't stand up and say that's wrong, that's heretical. We're too amiable we got great scholars in this country great scholars in in the world that know the bible and yet they're silent and as a scholar if i knew as much as some of these other guys do i would be standing up and screaming this is wrong and that's their responsibility to do so they've got phds in the word they know what these people are teaching is false doctrine paul was one of the greatest scholars that ever walked the earth he was a genius and, and had no problem calling people out. Why do our scholars today not speak up more clearly? I do not know. And yet we have a lot of knuckleheads out there that don't have any degree that's pointing the finger at other people in the church. They're not, not even close to being heretical. They just disagree with some of their ideas of how the spirit moves or the gifts. And yet they, you don't hear a whole lot about this gentleman being said up until here recently until he made this TikTok video. Now everybody wants to talk about him. Well, I never heard of the dude until this. And now, you know, it's like I look, I go on YouTube, and it's like he's got videos all over the place saying things worse than what he said on the TikTok video. What are we doing? So, you know, again, I would call Brandon Robinson or anybody 
who openly supports and says that Jesus is okay with homosexuality and bisexuality, I would call his attention to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. I'm not going to pull it up on the screen. I'm just going to read it for you guys. Or do you not know that the Roman righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, that means there's someplace else that they will go. Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And I'm sure that these guys will try to twist what the kingdom of God is. It's not really heaven. It's not really hell. It's what you experience here on earth. That's what they're doing. And if you're not careful, you're going to get sucked into that stuff if you don't have sound biblical doctrine. That's why places like Redemption Seminary, who makes sound doctrine affordable for everybody to take, there's, it's, there's a timeliness to their coming on the scene and offering some of the things they're doing because there is a bunch of junk out there, guys, we got to really be careful of. These are but a few examples of what has infiltrated the church and how the message to the seven churches is more relevant today than it ever has been. And this is serious business. Jesus takes this very seriously. If you don't believe me, look at the responses. Look at what he threatens as judgment for these churches. We have lost the fear of the Lord in this country and traded it in for a my buddy hippie love version of Jesus. It's the truth. I have great concern for the Western church and the condition that the majority of it is in. And one time you may have found one or two examples of the negative conditions outlining the letters of the seven churches, but currently you can find all of these conditions, every single one of them, as the morality of this nation spirals into complete darkness. And that's where we're going if we don't begin to rise up, stand up, and speak up. It isn't gonna, it's, it's going to get worse. We're going to enter into a dark age in this country. And it's, it's the pulpit. It's, it's our leaders that need to speak up. It's the Christian community that needs to speak up. We need to get out of our rapture bunkers and start professing the word of the Lord again and being bold in what we say, but loving people at the same time. There's too many times in the past when we've spoken against homosexuality or people that are getting abortions, but we've done it out of spirit of hatred. We've done it out of spirit of anger. We, you know what? The truth is truth in love. It may sting, but you can still feel the love behind it. You know, my mom would correct me when I did wrong, and you didn't like it. The switch stung a little bit, but I knew she loved me and I knew she meant it for my good because it kept me from doing worse things that might destroy my life. And that is what we have to start looking at when we begin to speak up and say, you know what, brother, I love you, but your sin's going to send you to hell. And I don't want to see you spend an eternity that wasn't meant to be for you to begin with and be able to defend what we're saying. So important for right now. Unless her followers, including the false prophet, repent, according to this letter, judgment is coming in either the form of sickness or up to death. Here we see the demonstration of the mercy of God, given the opportunity to repent and not fall under judgment up until the last possible minute. Even though Revelation draws a hard line between those who follow the Lord and those that do not, until this age is over, repentance and salvation is always an option. 
It's a beautiful thing. The fear of the Lord will return to the church from the judgment that is rendered. That's what he's saying there. Everybody's going to know. Daddy's laying down the law. And that's what it's basically saying towards the end of that verse. The one whose eyes are like a flame of fire sees that truly is in our hearts. But the rest of you, verse 24, I'll throw that up on the screen. Sorry about that. Got a little hit on myself. Felt like preaching there for a minute. So we got verse 24. But the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold these, this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. On that, just a few things I want to point out. The deep things of Satan seem to be what the Thyatiran Christians labeled what the false teachers were actually teaching. Apparently they were teaching it was okay to experience and know things concerning demonic satanic realm weird stuff like that moving on to the next verse verse 26 the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him i will give uh, give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and we go back to psalm 2 as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as i myself have received authority from my father and i will give him the morning star he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches so we see here what it means to conquer keeping the works and the will of jesus until the end or death the promise is to reign with him which is a theme repeated seven times throughout the book of revelation he ends with a reference from psalm 2 just as he began the letter again when you get opportunity to read psalm 2 it'll give you an understanding and a feeling of what's being really conveyed here referencing psalm 2 2 through 8 and numbers 24 17 so this is the idea of the morning star the symbol of the morning star which is associated with the messianic rank and that's pulled from those two scriptures as an image and the idea of participating and reigning with christ for overcomers is enhanced considering that the morning star which is actually the planet venus was a symbol of sovereignty throughout ancient world and especially in rome emperors were thought to be descended from the goddess venus roman generals built temples dedicated to the star and it was a sign carried on the standard of roman legions so jesus is saying that he is the true sovereign of the world not the evil empires of men. And I want to close this teaching with Ian Paul's statement from his commentary where he summarizes the theology that is revealed in the letter to Thyatira, and I think it's awesome. It says, There is, for Jesus followers, a right intolerance, one born not out of lack of love, but out of a commitment to the truth of who Jesus is and the allegiance he calls us to. It is claimed that there is a new word from God, a new prophecy that allows them to compromise with key practices in the surrounding dominant culture. Sound familiar? But the true prophetic word is consistent with who Jesus was and is. From the beginning to the to end, it is Jesus who is the true anointed king, the true divine ruler, anticipated in the past, vindicated in the present, and the one who will exercise his sovereign authority into the future. He is a sharp contrast to other rulers who would claim these ideas. And so his followers are to live in sharp contrast with those over whom such rulers hold sway in every aspect of life. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Until we talk again, keep walking in the way.
This concludes our program for today. We hope you are enjoying the journey. Until next time, keep living the word and walking the way.